You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. It is December, and it's, uh, spooky Halloween. No, no, spooky Christmas. That's, that's the right one. I think, I think it's spooky Christmas. I'm not sure what's going on in town yet. I haven't seen Dave for a little bit, so, uh, after I find out where Dave is, we'll find out what's going on around town. So, happy December. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell people about us and uh, ask us questions. Send us mail. Uh, just follow the show notes and uh, we'll talk to you then. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, by the way, Henry Kuttner stories. Five of them. Four of them? A couple of them. Here we go. The Creature from Beyond Infinity by Henry Kuttner. Chapter 1 The Beginning. Ardath opened his eyes, trying to remember why a blinding pain should be throbbing within his skull. Above him was a twisted girder of yellow metal, and beyond that the inner wall of the spaceship. What had happened? It seemed scarcely a moment ago that the craft had been filled with a confusion of shouted orders, quickly moving men, and the shriek of cleft atmosphere as the ship drove down. Then had come the shock of landing, blackness, and now, painfully, Ardath dragged his slight, fragile body erect. All around him were ruin and confusion. Corpses lay sprawled and limp, the bodies of those who had not survived the terrible concussion. Strange men, slim and delicate, their skins had been darkly tanned by the long voyage across space. Ardath started hopefully when he saw that one of the bodies moved slightly and moaned. Theron! Theron the commander, highest in rank and wisdom, had survived. A wave of gratefulness swept through Ardath. He was not alone on this new, unknown world as he had feared. Swiftly he found stimulants and bent over the reviving man. Theron's gray, beardless face grew contorted. His pallid blue eyes opened. He drew a lean hand over his bald head as he whispered, Our death! A rocking shudder shook the ship, then suddenly died. Who else is alive? Theron asked with painful effort. I don't know, Theron, Ardath replied softly. Find out. Ardath searched the huge golden ship. He came back with despair on his drawn, harrowed features. You and I are the only ones left alive, Theron. The commander gnawed at his lips. So, and I am dying. He smiled resignedly at Ardath's sudden protest. It's true, Ardath. You do not realize how old I am. For years we have gone through space, and you are the youngest of us. Unshield a port. Let me see where we are." The third planet of this system, Ardath said. He pressed a button that swung back a shutter from a nearby port in the Golden Wall. They saw nothing but darkness at first. Then their eyes became accustomed to the gloom. The ship lay beached on a dim shore. Blackly ominous, the strange world loomed through the gray murk of vague light that filtered through the cloudy sky. A slow drizzle of rain was falling. 
Test the atmosphere, Theron commanded. Ardath obeyed. The spectroscopic analysis, made from outer space, had indicated that the air here was breathable. The chemical test confirmed this. At Theron's request, Ardath opened a space lock. Air surged in with a queerly choking sulfurous odor. The two men coughed rackingly until eventually they became accustomed to it. "'Carry me out,' the commander said quietly. His glance met and locked with Ardath's as the younger man hesitated. "'I shall die soon,' he insisted gently. "'But first I must—I must know that I have reached my goal.' Silently Ardath lifted the slight figure in his arms. He splashed through the warm waves and gently laid Theron down on the barren beach. The sun, hidden behind a cloud blanket, was rising in the first dawn Ardath had ever seen. A gray sky and sea, a dark shore, those were all he actually saw. Under Ardath's feet he felt the world shudder with the volcanic fires of creation. Rain and tide had not yet eroded the rocks into sand and soil. No vegetation grew anywhere. He did not know whether the land was an island or a continent. It rose abruptly from the beach and mounted to towering crags against the inland skyline. Theron sighed. His thin fingers groped blindly over the rocky surface on which he lay. "'You are space-born, Ardath.' he said painfully. You cannot quite realize that only on a planet can a man find a home. But I am afraid—" His voice died away. Then it rose again, strengthened. I am dying, but there is something I must tell you first. Listen, Ardath. You never knew your mother planet, Kyria. It is light-years away from this world. Or it was. Centuries ago we discovered that Kyria was doomed. A wandering planetoid came so close that it would inevitably collide with us and destroy our civilization utterly. Kyria was a lovely world, Ardath. I know, Ardath breathed. I have seen the films in our records. You have seen our great cities and the green forests and fields. An agonizing cough rocked the dying commander. He went on hastily. We fled. A selected group of us made this spaceship and left Kyria in search of a new home. But of the hundreds of planets that we found, none was suitable. None would sustain human life. This, the third planet of this yellow sun, is our last hope. Our fuel is almost gone. It is your duty, Ardath, to see that the civilization of Kyria does not perish. But this is a dead world, the younger man protested. It is a young world, Theron corrected. He paused, and his hand lifted, pointing. Ardath stared at the slow, sullen tide that rippled drearily toward them. The gloomy wash of water receded, and there, on the rocky slope, lay something that made him nod understandingly. It was not large a greasy, shining blob of slime, featureless and repulsive, it was unmistakably alive, undeniably sentient. The shimmering globule of protoplasm was drawn back with the next wave. 
When Ardath's eyes met Theron's, the dying man smiled triumphantly. Life! There's sun here, Ardath, beyond the clouds. A sun that sends forth energy, cosmic rays, the rays of evolution. Immeasurable ages will pass before human beings exist here, but exist they will. Our study of countless other planets enables us to predict the course of evolution here. From the unicellular creatures will come sea-beings with vertebrae, then amphibii, and true reptiles. Then warm-blooded beasts will evolve from the flying reptiles and the dinosaurs. Finally, there will be ape-like men, who will yield the planet to true men. But it will take millennia. You must remain here, Theron stated. How many of us survived the voyage from Kyria? You must wait our death, even a million years if it is necessary. Our stasis ray kept us in suspended animation while we came across space. Take the ship beyond the atmosphere. Adjust it to a regular orbit, like a second satellite around this world. Set the controls, so you will awaken eventually, and be able to investigate the evolutionary progress of this planet. You will wait a long time, I admit, but finally you will find men." "'Men like us?' Theron shook his head regretfully. "'No. Supermentality is a matter of eugenically controlled breeding. Occasionally a mental giant will be born, but not often. On Kyria we bred and mated these mental giants, till eventually their progeny peopled the planet. You must do the same with this world." "'I will,' Ardath consented. "'But how? Go through the ages. Do not stop till you find one of these mental giants. He will be easily recognized, for almost from infancy he will be far advanced of his contemporaries. He will withdraw from them, turning to the pursuit of wisdom. He will be responsible for many of the great inventions of his time. Take this man, or woman perhaps, and go on into time, until you have found a mental giant of the opposite sex. You could never mate with a female of this world, Ardath. Since you are from another system, it would be biologically impossible. The union would be sterile. This is your duty. Find a supermentality. Take him from his own time-sector, and find a mate for him in the more distant future. From that union will arise a race of giants equal to the Kyrians. In a sense, you will have been their foster-father." Theron sighed and turned his head till his cheek lay against the bare rock of the shore. "'May the great architect guide you, Ardath,' he said softly. Abruptly his head slumped and Theron was dead. The gray waves whispered a requiem. Ardath stood silent, looking down at the worn, tired face, now relaxed in death. He was alone, infinitely far from the nearest human being. Then another feeling came, making him realize that he was no longer a homeless wanderer of space. Never in his life had Ardath stood on a world's surface. The others had told him of Kyria, and on the pictorial library screens he had seen views of green and sunset lands that
that were agonizingly beautiful. Inevitably, Ardath had come to fear the black immensity of the starlit void, to hate its cold, eternal changelessness. He had dreamed of walking on grassy, rolling plains. That would come, for he knew Theron had been right. Cycads and ferns would grow where Ardath now stood. Amphibii would come out of the waters and evolve, slowly, of course, but with inexorable certainty. He could afford to wait. First, though, he needed power. The great atomic engine of the ship was useless, exhausted. Atomic power resembled dynamite in that it needed some outside source of energy to get it started. Dynamite required a percussion cap. The engine of the golden ship needed power. Solar energy? Lenses were required. Besides, the cloud blanket was an insurmountable handicap, filtering out most of the necessary rays. Coal? It would not exist here for ages. A tremble shook the ground, and Ardath nodded thoughtfully. There was power below the power of seething lava, enormous pressures, and heat that could melt solid rock. Could it be harnessed? Steam! A geyser! That would provide the necessary energy to start the atomic motor. After that, anything would be possible. With a single regretful glance at the dead Theron, Ardath set out to explore the savage new world. For two days and nights he hunted, growing haggard and weary. At last he found an area of lava streams, shuddering rock, and geysers. Steam feathered up into the humid air, and to the north a red glow brightened the gray sky. Ardath stood for a while watching. His quest was ended. Long weeks of arduous work still lay ahead, but now he had no doubt of ultimate success. The steam demons would set the atomic motor into operation. After that he could rip ores from the ground and find chemicals. But after that... The ship must be made spaceworthy again, though not for another long voyage. Such a course would be fruitless. Of all the planets the Kyrians had visited, only this world was capable of supporting life. As yet, mere cells of blind, insensate protoplasm swarmed in the sullen seas, but those cells would develop. Evolution would work upon them. Perhaps in a million years, human beings, intelligent creatures, would walk this world. Then, one day, a super-mentality would be born and Ardath would find that kindred mind. He would take that mental giant into the future, in search of a suitable mate. After dozens of generations there would arise a civilization that would rival that of Kyria, his home planet, now utterly destroyed without trace. Time passed as Ardath worked. He blasted out a grave for Theron on the shore where the old Kyrian had died. He repaired the golden craft. Tirelessly, he toiled. Five months later, the repaired spaceship rose, carrying its single passenger. Through the atmosphere it fled, it settled into an orbit, became a second, infinitesimal moon revolving around the mother planet. Within it, Ardath's robot machinery began to operate. A ray beamed out, touching and bathing the man's form which was stretched on a low couch. 
Slowly, consciousness left Ardath. The atomic structure of his body was subtly altered. Electrons slowed in their orbits. Since they emitted no quanta, Ardath's energy was frozen in the utter motionlessness of stasis. Neither live nor dead, he slept. The ray clicked off. When Ardath awakened, he would see a different world, older and stranger. Perhaps it would even be peopled by intelligent beings. Silently, the spaceship swept on. Far beneath it a planet, shuddered in the titanic grip of dying fires. The rains poured down, eroding, endless. The tides flowed and ebbed. Always the cloud veil shrouded the world that was to be called Earth. Amid the shattering thunder of deluges, new lands rose and continents were formed. Life, blind, hungry, and groping, crawled up on the beaches, where it basked for a time in the dim sunlight. Chapter 2 Youth On August 7, 1924, an eight-year-old boy caused a panic in a Des Moines theater. His name was Stephen Court. He had been born to a theatrical family of mediocre talent, the crazy courts they were billed. The act was a combination of gags, dances, and humorous songs. Stephen traveled with his parents on tour when they played one-night stands and small vaudeville circuits. In 1924, vaudeville had not yet been killed by the films. It was the beginning of the jazz age. Stephen was so remarkably intelligent, even as a child, that he was soon incorporated into the act as a mental wizard. He wore a miniature cap and gown, and was introduced by his parents at the end of their turn. "'Any date! Ask him any historical date, my friends, and he will answer. The gentleman in the third row, what do you want to know?' And Stephen would answer accurately. "'When did Columbus discover America? When was the Magna Carta signed?' When was the Battle of Hastings? When was Lafayette born? Mathematical questions! You there! Stephen would answer. Mathematics was no riddle for him, nor algebra. The value of pi, he knew it. Formulas and equations slipped glibly from his tongue. He stood on the stage in the spotlight, his small face impassive, a small, dark-haired child with curiously luminous brown eyes, and answered all questions. He read omnivorously every book he could manage to obtain. He was coldly unemotional, which distressed his mother, and he hid his thoughts well. Then, on that August night, his me suddenly changed. The act was almost over. The audience was applauding wildly. The courts stood on each side of the boy, bowing and Stephen stood motionless, his strange, glowing eyes staring out into the gloom of the theater. "'Take your bows, kid!' Court hissed from the side of his mouth. But the boy didn't answer. There was an odd tensity in his rigid posture. His expressionless face seemed strained. Only in his eyes was there life, and a terrible fire. In the theater a whisper grew to a murmur, and the applause died. Then the murmur swelled to a restrained roar until someone screamed, "'Fire!' Court glanced around quickly. He could see no signs of smoke or flame. 
but he made a quick gesture and the orchestra leader struck up a tune. Hastily, the man and woman went into a routine tap-dance. "'Steve!' Court said urgently. "'Join in!' But Stephen just stood there, and through the theatre the roar rose to individual screams of panic. The audience no longer watched the stage. They sprang up and fought their way to the exits, cursing, pushing, crowding. Nothing could stop it. By sheer luck no one was killed. But in ten minutes the theatre was empty, and there had been no sign of a fire. In his dressing-room Court looked queerly at his son. "'What was wrong with you tonight, kid?' he asked, as he removed grease-paint from his face with cold cream. "'Nothing,' Stephen said abstractedly. "'Something funny about the whole thing. There wasn't any fire.' Stephen sat on a chair, his legs swinging idly. "'That magician we played with last week,' he began. "'Yeah? I got some ideas from him.' "'Well?' his father urged. I watched him when he hypnotized a man from the audience. That's all it was. I hypnotized the entire audience tonight." "'Oh, cut it out,' Court said, grinning. "'It's true. The conditions were right. Everyone's attention was focused on me. I made them think there was a fire.' When Court turned and looked at the boy, he had an odd feeling that this was not his son sitting opposite him. The round face was childish, but the eyes were not. They were cold, watchful, direct. Court laughed without much conviction. "'You're crazy,' he said, turning back to the light-rimmed mirror. "'Maybe I am,' Stephen said lightly. "'I want to go to school. Will you send me?' "'I can't afford it. Anyway, you're too big an attraction. Maybe we can manage later.' Stephen did not argue. He rose and went toward his mother's dressing-room, but he did not enter. Instead, he turned and left the theater. He had determined to run away. Stephen already knew that his brain was far superior to the average. It was as yet unformed, requiring knowledge and capable training. Those he could never get through his parents. He felt no sorrow or pity on leaving them. His cool intellect combined with the natural cruelty of childhood to make him unemotional, passionlessly logical. But Stephen needed money, and his youth was a handicap. No one would employ a child, he knew, except perhaps as a newsboy. Moreover, he had to outwit his parents, who would certainly search for their son. Strangely, there was nothing pathetic about Stephen's small figure as he trudged along the dark street. His iron singleness of purpose and his ruthless will gave him a certain incongruous dignity. He walked swiftly to the railroad station. On the way he passed a speakeasy. A man was lying in the gutter before the door, an unshaved derelict, grizzled of hair and with worn, dissolute features. He was mumbling drunkenly and striving helplessly to rise. Stephen paused to watch. Attracted by the silent gaze, the man looked up. As the two glances met, inflexible purpose grew in the boy's pale face. "'Wanna drink,' the derelict mumbled. "'Gotta. They won't give old Sammy a drink.' Stephen's eyes again grew luminous. 
they seemed to bore into the watery eyes of the hobo, probing, commanding. "'Eh?' the drunkard asked blankly. Sammy's voice died off uncertainly as he staggered erect. Stephen gripped his arm, and the two went down the street. In a dark doorway they paused. The foggy, half-wrecked brain of the tramp was no match for Stephen's hypnotic powers. Sammy listened as the boy talked. "'You're catching a freight out of town. You're taking me with you. Do you understand?' "'Eh?' Sammy asked vaguely. In a monotonous voice the boy repeated his commands. When the drunkard finally understood, the two headed for the railway station. Stephen's plans were made. To all appearance he was a mere child. He could not possibly have fulfilled his desires alone. The authorities would have returned him to his parents, or he would have been sent to a school as a public charge. What man could recognize in a young boy an already blossoming genius? Stephen's supermentality was seriously handicapped by his immaturity. He needed a guardian, purely nominal, to satisfy the prejudices of the world. Through Sammy he could act. Sammy would be his tongue, his hands, his legal representative. Men would be willing to deal with Sammy, where they would have laughed at a child. But first the tramp would have to be metamorphosed into a useful citizen. That night they rode in a chilly box-car, headed east. Hour after hour Stephen worked on the brain of his captive. Sammy must be his eyes, his hands, his provider. The train rolled on through the darkness, the wheels beating a clicking melody toward the east. It was not easy, for the habits of years had weakened Sammy's body and mind. He was a convinced tramp, lazy and content to follow his wanderlust. But always Stephen drove him on, arguing, commanding, convincing. Hypnosis played a large part in the boy's ultimate success. Sammy got a job, much against his will, and washed dishes in a cheap restaurant for a few weeks. He shaved daily and consistently drank less. Meanwhile Stephen waited, but he did not wait in idleness. He spent his days visiting automobile agencies and studying the machines. At night he crouched in a cheap tenement room, sketching and designing. Finally he spoke to Sammy. "'I want you to get another job. You will be a mechanic in an automobile factory.' He watched Sammy's reaction. "'Aw, oh, I can't, Steve,' the man protested. "'They wouldn't even look at me. Let's hit the road again, huh?' "'Show them these,' Stephen ordered, extending a sheaf of closely written papers and drawings. "'They'll give you a job.' At first the foreman told Sammy to get out, after a glance at his red-rimmed eyes and weak, worn face. But the papers were a magic password. The foreman pondered over them, bewilderingly scrutinized Sammy, and went off to confer with one of the managers. The man's good, he blurted. He doesn't look it, but he's an expert mechanic, just the kind of man we need. Look at these improvements he's worked out. This wiring change will save us thousands annually. And this gear ratio. It's new, but it might work. I think— Send him in, the manager said hastily. Thus Sammy got his job. 
Actually, he wasn't much good, but every month or two he would show up with some new improvement, some unexpected invention that got him raises instead of dismissal. Of course, Stephen was responsible for all this. He had adopted Sammy. Stephen saw to it that they moved to a more convenient apartment, and now he went to school. Needing surprisingly little sleep, he spent most of his time studying. There was so much to learn, and so little time. To acquire the knowledge he wanted, he needed more and more money to pay for tutoring and equipment. The years passed with a peaceful lack of haste. Sammy drank little now, and took a great deal of interest in his work. But he was still a tramp at heart, eternally longing for the open road. Sometimes he would try to slip away, but Stephen was always too watchful. At last the boy was ready for the next step. It was then early in 1927. After months of arduous toil he had completed several inventions which he thought valuable. He had Sammy patent them, and then market them to the highest bidders. The result was more money than Stephen had expected. He made Sammy resign his job, and the two of them retired to a country house. He brought along several tutors, and had a compact, modern laboratory set up. When more money was required, the boy would potter around for a while. Inevitably, he emerged with a new formula that increased the already large annual income. Tutors changed as Stephen grew older and learned more. He attended college for a year, but found he could apply his mind better at home. He needed a larger headquarters, though, so they moved to Wisconsin and bought a huge old mansion, which he had renovated. His request for knowledge seemed endless, yet he did not neglect his health. He went for long walks and exercised mightily. When he grew to manhood he was a magnificent specimen, strong, well-formed, and handsome but always, save for a few occasional lapses, he was coldly unemotional. Once he had detectives locate his parents, and anonymously arranged to provide a large annual income for them, but he would not see either his father or mother. They would mean emotional crisis, he told Sammy. There would be unnecessary arguments. By this time they have forgotten me anyway. "'Think so?' Sammy muttered, chewing on the stem of his ancient pipe. His nut-brown, wrinkled face looked rather puzzled under his stiff crop of white hair. "'Well, I never did think you was human, Stevie.' He shook his head, put the pipe away, and pottered off in search of his rare drinks. Stephen returned to his work. What was the purpose of these years of intensive study? He scarcely knew. His mind was a vessel to be filled with the clear, exhilarating liquor of knowledge. As Sammy's system craved alcohol, so Stephen's brain thirsted for wisdom. Study and experiment were to him a delight that approached actual ecstasy. As an athlete gets keen pleasure from the exercise of his well-trained body, so Stephen exulted in the exercise of his mind. Unimaginable eons before, in the teeming seas of a primeval world, life-forms had fed their blind hunger. That was appetite of the flesh. Stephen's hunger was the appetite of the mind. 
but it also made him blind in a different way. He was a godlike man, and he was unhuman. By 1941 he was the greatest scientist in the world. Chapter 3 The Earth-Born Before man created gods, Ardath was. In his spaceship, swinging silently around the world, he slept as the ages went past. Sometimes he woke and searched, always in vain, for intelligent life in the land below. The road of evolution was long and bloody. Dark weariness shrouded Ardath as he saw the vast, mindless, terrible behemoths of the oceans. Monsters wallowed into the swamps. The ground shook beneath the tread of tyrant lizards. Brontosaurs and pterodactyls lived and fed and died. There were mammals, Eohippus the fleet and three-toed, and a tiny marsupial in which the flame of intelligence glowed feebly. But the titan reptiles ruled. Mammals could not survive in this savage, thundering world. Forests of weeds and bamboo towered in a tropical zone that stretched almost to the poles. Ardath pondered, studied for a time in his laboratory, and the Ice Age came. Was Ardath responsible? Perhaps. His science was not earthly, and his powers were unimaginable. The ice mountains swept down, blowing their frigid breath upon the forests and the reptile giants. Southward the Hajira fled. It was the day of judgment for the idiot colossi that had ruled too long. But the mammals survived. Shuddering in the narrow equatorial belt, they starved and whimpered, but they lived and they evolved, while Ardeth slept again. When he awoke, he found beast-men, hairy and ferocious. They dwelled in gregarious packs, ruled by an old man who had proved himself strongest of the band. But always the chill winds of the Icelands tore at them as they crouched in their caves. Ardath found one, wiser than the rest, and taught him the use of fire. Then the alien man sent his ship arrowing up from earth, while flames began to burn wanly before cave-mouths. In grunts and sign-language the story was told. Ages later man would tell the tale of Prometheus, who stole fire from the very gods of heaven. Folklore is filled with the legends of men who visited the gods, the little people or the sky-dwellers, and returned with strange powers. Arrows and spears, the smelting of oars, the sowing and reaping of grain, how many inventions could be traced to Ardath? But at last Ardath slept for a longer time than ever before, and then he awoke. Dark was the city. Flambeaux were numerous as fireflies in the gloomy streets. The metropolis lay like a crouching beast on the shore, a vast conglomeration of stone, crude and colossal. The ship of Ardath hung far above the city, unseen in the darkness of the night. Ardath himself was busy in his laboratory, working on a curiously constructed device that measured the frequency and strength of mentality. Thought created electrical energy, and Ardath's machine registered the power of that energy. 
Delicately, he sent an invisible narrow wave beam down into the city far beneath. On a gauge a needle crept up, halted, dipped, and mounted again. Ardath reset a dial. Intelligent beings dwelt on earth now, but their intelligence was far inferior to Ardath's. He was searching for a higher level. The needle was inactive as Ardath swept the city with his ray. Useless. The pointer did not even quiver. The mental giant Ardath sought was not here, though this was the greatest metropolis of the primeval world. But suddenly the needle jerked slightly. Ardath halted the ray and turned to a television screen. Using the beam as a carrier, he focused upon a scene that sprang into instant visibility. He saw a throne of black stone upon which a woman sat. Tall and majestic, an Amazon of forty or more, she had lean, rugged features and wore plain garments of leather. Guards flanked her, gigantic, stolid, armed with spears. Before the throne a man stood, and it was at this man that Ardath stared. For months the Kyrian ship had scoured the skies, searching jungles and deserts. Few cities existed. On the northern steppes shaggy beast-men still dwelt in caves, fighting the mammoth. But the half-men and the hairy elephants were rapidly degenerating. In mountain lakes were villages built on stilts and piers, sunken into the mud, but these clans were barbarous. Only on this island were their civilization and intelligence, though lamentably lower than Ardath's own level. The man from space watched the wisest human on this primitive earth. In chains the earthman stood before the black stone. He was huge, massively thewed, with a bronzed, hairy skin showing through the rags he wore. His face resembled that of a beast, ferocious with hatred. Amber cat's eyes glared from beneath the beetling brows. The jutting jaw was hidden by a wiry beard that tangled around the nose that was little more than a snout. Yet in that brute body, Ardath knew, dwelt amazing intelligence. Shrewdness and cunning were well masked by the hideous face and form. What of the queen? Curious to know, Ardath tested her with his ray. She, too, was more intelligent than most of the savages. These two are enemies, Ardath thought, and I imagine that the man faces danger or death. Well, what is that to me? I cannot live in a time where all are barbarians. It is best that I sleep again." Yet he hesitated, one hand resting lightly on the controls that would send the ship racing up into space. The barren loneliness of the void, the slow centuries of his dark vigil, crept with icy tentacles into his mind. He thought of the equally long, miserably lonely future. Suppose I sleep again and wake in a dead world. It could happen, for my own home planet was destroyed. How could I face another search through space? Theron and the rest had each other. He turned back again to watch the two people on the screen. They are intelligent, after a fashion, and they would be companions. 
If I took them with me, and we woke in a lifeless time, they could bring forth a new race which I could train eugenically into the right pattern." The decision was made. Ardath would sleep again in his ship, but this time not alone. He glanced at the screen and his eyes widened. A new factor had entered the problem. Hastily he turned to a complicated machine at his side. As Thordred the usurper stood before the throne of his queen, his savage face was immobile. Weaponless, fettered, he nevertheless glared with implacable fury at the woman who had spoiled his plans. Zena met his gaze coldly. Her harsh features were darkly somber. "'Well?' she asked. "'Have you anything to say to me?' "'Nothing,' Thordred grunted. "'I have failed, that is all.' The huge, almost empty throne-room echoed his words eerily. "'Aye, you have failed,' the Queen said. "'And there is but one fate for losers who revolt. You tried to force me from my throne, and instead you stand in chains before me. You have lost, so you must die.' Thordred's grin mocked her calm decision and a woman continues to rule our land. Never in history has this shame been put upon us. Always we have been ruled by men, warriors." "'You call me a weakling?' Zena snarled at him. "'By all the gods you are rash, Thordred. You know well that I have never shirked battle, and that my sword has been swift to slay. I am strong as a man, and more cunning than you. Yet you are a woman," Thordred taunted recklessly. "'Kill me if you wish, but you cannot deny your sex.' A shadow darkened Zena's face as she glared venomously at her mocker. "'I, I shall kill you,' she said, "'so slowly that you will beg for a merciful death.' Then the vultures will pick your carcass clean on the mountain of the gods." Thordred suddenly shouted with laughter. "'Save your words, wench! It is just like a woman to threaten with words. A man's vengeance is with spear, swift and sudden.' He paused, and a curious light grew in his amber eyes. His great body tensed as Thordred listened. In the distance, a tumult grew louder and louder, like the beating of the sea. Suddenly it was thundering through the throne-room. Zena sprang to her feet, her lips parted in astonishment. The vast doors at the end of the room burst inward. Through the portal poured a yelling mob. "'Thordred!' they roared. "'Ho! Thordred!' The giant grinned victoriously at Zena. Some are still faithful to me, it seems. They would rather see a man on the throne." A blistering curse burst from Zena's lips. She snatched a spear from a guard and savagely drove its point at the prisoner. But Thordred sprang aside, laughing, the muscles rolling effortlessly under his tawny skin. He set his foot on the links of the chain that bound his wrists. His body arched like a bow. The metal snapped asunder, and Thordred, the usurper, was free. The guards near the throne leaped at him. 
He ducked under a swift spear at the same instant that his fist smashed a face into a bloody ruin. And then the mob surrounded him, lifted him, bore him back. "'Slay him!' Zena shrilled. "'Slay him!' The mob swept back, out of the hall, through the great doors, and into the street. But now Zena's cries brought a response. Armed soldiers rushed in through a dozen portals. They raced after the escaping prisoner, with Zena fearlessly leading them. It was sunset. The western sky flamed blood-red. Down the street the crowd seethed to halt in an open plaza. Grimly menacing, they turned at bay, Thordred at their head. He towered above the others with his chains dangling from his wrists and ankles. Zena's men formed into a sizable army, filling the street from side to side. Arrows flew, hissing at the angry, triumphant mob. Over the city the low, thunderous muttering grew louder. Revolt! Revolt! It was civil war. But the conflict was not yet in contact. A space still lay between the two forces. Only spears and arrows had crossed it. Charge! Zena shouted. Slay them all! Grinning, Thordred raised high his lance and shook it defiantly. The Queen's soldiers drew erect, and like a thundercloud they began to move. Abruptly they were sweeping forward, irresistible, a tidal wave bristling with steel barbs. The pounding of then-shod feet hammered loud on the stones. In the forefront raced Zena, her harsh face twisted with fury. Thordred let fly his spear. It missed its mark. At the last moment the giant had hesitated, and his gaze went up to the western sky. His jaw dropped in awe. For the first time Thordred was afraid. A scream rose, thin and wailing. "'Demons!' someone cried. "'Demons!' The soldiers slowed involuntarily in their charge, then one by one they halted. Struck motionless with fearful wonder, every man stood gaping toward the west. Against the blood-red sunset loomed actual demons. Giants, scores of feet tall they were, titans whose heads towered above the city's walls. A whole army of the monsters loomed black against the scarlet sky. These were not men, shaggy, hump-shouldered, dreadful beings, more human than apes, but unmistakably beasts. They came thundering down upon the city. The frightful masks twisted in ferocious hunger. They swept forward. No one noticed that their advance made not the slightest sound. Panic struck the mobs. Both sides dropped their weapons to flee. From the sky a great shining globe dropped. It hovered above the plaza. Two beams of light flashed down from it. One struck Thordred, bathing him in crawling radiance. The other caught Zena. The man and the woman alike were held motionless. Frozen, paralyzed, they were swept up, lifted into the air. When they reached the huge globe they seemed to disappear. The sphere then rose, dwindled quickly to a speck, and was gone. Surprisingly, the giants had also vanished. Ardath adjusted the controls. Sighing, he turned away. 
the ship was back in its orbit, circling the Earth. It would not deviate from that course for centuries, until the moment Ardath's hand moved its controls. He picked up a small metal box, stepped out of the laboratory, and closed the panel. On the floor at his feet lay the unconscious forms of Zena and Thordred. Ardath set down the box. This would be a new experiment, one that he had never tried. He could not speak the language of these earthlings, nor could they speak his, but knowledge could be transmitted from one brain to another. Thought patterns were a form of energy, and that could be transferred, just as a matrix may stamp out duplicates. First, the man. Ardath opened the black box, took out a circular metallic band, and adjusted it about the sleeping Thordred's head. A similar band went about his own. He pressed a switch, felt a stinging, tingling sensation within his skull. He removed the metal bands, replaced them, and waited patiently. Would the experiment work? His lips shaped unfamiliar syllables. He had learned Thordred's language, but could the undeveloped brain of the earthling be equally receptive? Thordred groaned and opened his eyes. He stared up at Ardath. Into those amber eyes came a curious look that might have been amazement but which was certainly not fear. "'You are not hurt,' Ardath said in Thordred's harsh, primitive language. "'Nor will you be harmed.' The earthling stood up with an effort, breathing hoarsely. He took an unsteady step, reeled, collapsed with a shattering crash upon the thought-transference apparatus. He lay silent and unmoving, an utterly helpless strongman. No expression showed on Ardath's face, though the work of weeks had been ruined. The device could be built again, though he did not know if it should be. Had it been successful? Thordred shuddered, rolled over. Painfully, he rose and leaned weakly against the wall. His amber eyes rested puzzledly on Ardath as he asked a question in the Kyrian soft language, which grated from his crude throat. Who are you, a god or a demon?" Ardath smiled with satisfaction, for all was going well. He must explain matters to this earthling to calm his fears. Later he would rebuild the machine and teach Zena his own tongue. Then the three could sleep, for centuries if necessary. But Ardath did not know that his device had worked too well. It had transferred knowledge of his own language to Thordred's brain, yet it had transferred more than that. All of Ardath's memories had been transmitted to the mind of the earthling. At that moment Thordred's wisdom was as great as that of his captor. Though he had not Ardath's potentiality for learning more, unearthly, amazing wisdom had been impressed on his brain cells. Thordred had smashed the machine not through accident, but with coldly logical purpose. It would not do for Zena to acquire Ardath's wisdom also. With an effort Thordred kept an expression of stupid wonder on his face. He must play his role carefully. Ardath must not yet suspect that another man shared his secrets. Ardath was speaking, 
carefully explaining things that his captive already knew. While Thordred seemed to listen, he swiftly pondered and discarded plans. Zena must die, of course. As for sleeping for centuries, well, it was not a pleasant thought. Ardath must be slain, so Thordred could return to Earth with new knowledge. The giants you saw in the sky, said Ardath, were not real. They were three-dimensional projections, enlarged by my apparatus. I recorded the originals of those beings ages ago, when they actually lived and fought cave-bears and saber-toothed tigers. No, they were merely images, but men had seen them and remembered. The panic in the city below had died. In its place grew superstitious dread, fostered by the priests. Time passed, and neither Zena nor Thordred returned. New rulers arose to sit upon the black throne. But on the mountain of the gods men toiled under the lash of the priests. Monstrous images of stone rose against the sky, gap-mouthed, fearsome images in crude similitude of the devils who had come out of the sunset. They may return, the priests warned, but the stone giants on the mountain will frighten them away, build them higher, they will guard our city. On the peak the blind alien faces glared ever into the sunset, and the days fled into years, and the dark centuries shrouded earth. Continents crumbled, the eternal seas rose and washed new shores. But the blind god stayed to guard that which no longer needed guarding, and still they watch those strange alien statues on Easter Island. End of chapter 3